the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. I was a crime figure that ran a strip joint nightclub. And, um, uh, you know, the, the silencing of Lee Harvey Oswald looked like a mob snuffing out that fit a CIA pattern of a, a coup d'etat with an assassination where the alleged assassin was killed and there was no trial. The CIA had developed this model in Guatemala in 1954. And when you look at the pattern, it was a reuse of a CIA pattern to identify a guilty party and then kill him off before there was any trial. A look at who really killed Kennedy. Fifty years later, stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. With us is New York Times bestselling author, Dr. Jerome Corsi. We'll come back to some concluding remarks by Dr. Corsi as our Lifeline special report continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to this edition of Lifeline. Today, a look at who really killed Kennedy. Fifty years later, stunning new revelations about the JFK assassination. The new book, by the way, newly published by World Net Daily, available through World Net Daily Books. You can also get it through Dr. Corsi's website at jeromecorsi.com. Dr. Corsi, let's begin now to sort of fit all of the pieces together. So we have Jack Kennedy traveling to Dallas on some political business that fateful Friday afternoon in November of 1963. Jack Kennedy is a man that is clearly loved by many in the country, but he's also made a lot of enemies. You made reference earlier on in our conversation to the CIA Cuba, the Bay of Pigs, the fact that at the last minute, Kennedy pulled back air support for the CIA operatives that were storming the beaches there in Cuba in an attempt to try and overthrow Fidel Castro. There were enemies there. We know certainly that in the election of 1960, his father, Joe Kennedy, called in some favors, didn't he? Favors that were tied into people that he had associations with going back to the days of Prohibition. Yes, with the mob. The Kennedys used Sam Giancana in Chicago to tip the election to Jack Kennedy with votes that were in wards controlled by the mob. And yet Bobby Kennedy was very aggressively prosecuting the mob as attorney general. The mob felt betrayed. Uh, the mob and the CIA had been working together on assassination plots going back into the World War II period and certainly had worked together again back to Guatemala. Had worked. The Kennedys were using the mob of the CIA to try to kill Castro. Uh, and so the, the mob, these enemies, these very powerful enemies, including Lyndon Johnson, who... The Kennedys were in the process of probably removing from the ticket. A major article, a second article, was going to appear the next week on Lyndon Johnson and what was the Bobby Baker scandal, a scandal that most likely would have tanked LBJ's political career had the article been published. There were a lot of forces here that this very young, popular president had also made some very powerful enemies who uh, could see a future without Jack Kennedy as being much brighter for their particular interests. Joe Kennedy calls in favors. The Chicago mob helps get his son elected. 
And then within a matter of months of the new administration, um, his brother, Bobby Kennedy, is appointed attorney general. And the first thing on Bobby Kennedy's agenda is to try and root out organized crime. And so there's some major enemies that are being made there, along with the fact that not only was there concerns about the future role, if at all, that Johnson would play within the administration, but then, too, there was some bad blood between the Kennedys and J. Edgar Hoover, too, wasn't there? Absolutely. Um, J. Edgar Hoover had been investigating Jack Kennedy's extramarital affairs. He had files on them. Uh, Jack Kennedy would wanted desperately to remove uh, J. Edgar Hoover from heading the FBI, and Lyndon Johnson, of course, when he got into office, very quickly gave J. Edgar Hoover a lifetime appointment to head the FBI. So, you know, there were interests that were... Johnson paid back a lot of favors after he got to be president and made sure a Warren Commission was constituted in a way that Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA that Jack Kennedy fired after the Bay of Pigs, was appointed onto the commission. And ironically, apparently, neither the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, nor the president himself, now Lyndon Baines Johnson, really had that much interest in digging any deeper into the questions that continued to linger over who really killed Kennedy. Two things. Uh, apparently, some lawyer in justice is lobbying with the Post because uh, that's where the suggestion came from to, for this presidential commission, which we think would be very bad. Uh, put it right in the White House. And, uh, we can't be uh, checking up on every uh, every uh, uh, shooting spree in the country, but sometimes a commission that's not trained hurts more than helps. It's a regular circus, then. That's right. Because it will be covered by TV and everything. Just like an investigating committee. Exactly. I, I don't have much influence with the post because I frankly I don't read it. <laughs> I, 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 I know that. I, know I that. do it like a daily you, worker. You told me that once before. But, but, uh, but I just want your people to know the facts, yeah. and your people can say that, and that kind of negates it, you see. Yep. Ironically, there you have a recorded telephone conversation between President Johnson and then the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, almost in agreement and, 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 and almost could say collusion in agreeing that something like the Warren Commission would not be a good thing. Getting to the truth of who was responsible for clearly the most critical assassination of the 20th century was not a truth that they wanted to arrive at. Why? Right. And specifically what Johnson and Hoover were talking about was a suggestion by the New York newspaper, of an open commission, like the Watergate Commission, where you'd have testimony in public and it would be broadcast. Well, that's what Johnson and Hoover didn't want. They didn't want this evidence aired and examined in public. They settled for a closed-door committee that the evidence was sealed, and the committee presented a final report, and these 26 volumes with the evidence so poorly organized and not evaluated or... Um, examined publicly that the conclusion could be rammed through and accepted before anybody had a chance to read the 26 volumes. In the years since the assassination, post-Warren Commission report, which, which ironically uh, had at its head a sworn enemy of Jack Kennedy, Alan Dulles, um, the conclusion had been drawn that Lee Harvey Oswald was the lone assassin. By 1973-74, though, that argument was not holding much water anymore publicly, and so then the House Select Committee on Assassination was called together. Was there anything definitive that came out of the uh, those hearings in terms of changing the ultimate official story as to who really killed Kennedy? Well, yes, I think the the pivotal thing was that they had a they found a a, a recording from a microphone of a police. 
uh, motorcycle that had been left on during the assassination, and the uh, committee did acoustical testing of that recording and determined that there were shots fired from the grassy knoll. So the House committee concluded that it was a conspiracy that killed Jack Kennedy, more than one shooter, and that the mob was likely involved. And this was a stunning conclusion, but again, in the sweep of history, uh, the you know the, the forces that be that want to settle this issue and not re-examine it, the politically correct version is returned to the Warren Commission's conclusion that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone gun assassin, even though there is a public committee, constitution, a congressional committee, that concluded a conspiracy was in fact involved. There is more evidence, too. In fact, a piece of evidence that had been sort of held uh, quiet from the public, although still frames of this footage had appeared in Life magazine in the years following the assassination, a piece of home film taken by one Abraham Zapruder. I got out and, uh, about a half hour earlier get to a good spot to shoot some pictures. And I found a spot, one of these uh, concrete blocks that I have down near that park near the underpass. And I got on top there. There was another girl from my office. She was right behind me. And as I was shooting, as the president was coming down from Houston Street making his turn, he was about halfway down there, I had a shot. Then he slumped to the side, like this. Then I had another shot or two, I couldn't say it was one or two. And I saw his head practically open up, all blood and everything. And I kept on shooting. That's about all. I'm just sick again. I think that pretty well expresses the entire feelings of the whole world. Let's go back to Daily Plaza, Parkland Hospital, and the so-called magic bullet theory. Now, we have the governor of Texas, John Connolly, has been wounded in the shoulder, wounded in the wrist, and wounded in the knee. We have the president who has been shot in the throat, shot in the back of the head. We have one bullet accounted for. One bullet that appears on a stretcher in virtually pristine condition, which ballistics today would suggest is no way could have passed through that much tissue, that much bone, that much cartilage, and come out in the condition that it did. Walk us through the analysis. You've made reference, Dr. Corsi, to the acoustic evidence. We've just heard Abraham Zapruder talk about the film that he shot, some critical key frames in that film that help us to piece together more of the story. What happened? Well, the, the key point is that there were only three shots that could have been fired in the time frame if Oswald was the lone gun assassin. And when the committee realized one shot missed, that meant either there were four shots or one shot had to hit both Kennedy and John Connolly, which is the single bullet theory. And they found this pristine bullet on a stretcher in the hospital that neither Kennedy or Connolly had been on that stretcher. Hmm. And they said that was the bullet that did all the damage. Now, Connolly had a broken rib. He had a, wrist, a broken wrist as well as a rib. Uh, the bone would have certainly deformed the bullet. That's the argument. And secondly, the back wound in Jack Kennedy, which the single bullet theory says the bullet entered in the back, went through the neck, and then exited to hit John Connolly. Well, the problem is that the back wound only went in about a quarter of an inch into Jack Kennedy's back, and even at the autopsy, there was no tracing of any route from the back wound to the neck wound, where it was supposed to have exited. And at Parkland Hospital, the neck wound was viewed as an entrance wound. An entrance wound would have also meant two shooters because the Texas School Book Depository, where Lee Harvey Oswald was supposed to have been, shooting from the sixth floor, was behind Jack Kennedy when the shooting started. 
Without giving away the totality of the book, and it really is a page-turner, and I want to urge listeners, particularly those of us that grew up during the era or recognize the critical turning point that took place in America. I mean, I I think that there's ever a time when there was a demarcation of when we lost our quote-unquote innocence to suggest that we ever even had it. Certainly, the assassination of John Fitzgerald Kennedy in November of 1963 seems to be that turning point. The book, again, Who Really Killed Kennedy, available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, also through Dr. Corsi's website at JeromeCorsi.com. But again, Dr. Corsi, without giving away too much information, walk us through, if you would, kind of your conclusion. Fit all the pieces together for us in a moment, and then folks can take advantage of the detail of which you go to in the book to help us understand all of this better. Well, I think you clearly. I believe there was a conspiracy. The I think the evidence of a shooter, probably from the grassy knoll, is uh, is compelling. The testimony of people who were witnesses on examination of the ballistics. I start with Parkland Hospital, where the doctors all said that both the throat wound and the head wound were shot from the front. Uh, the head wound was viewed as a gaping uh, hole in the back of the head. Uh, the doctors knew what they were looking at. These were highly qualified physicians. Parkland was a world-class facility even in the 60s. It was a very well-known and recognized hospital. The doctors were experienced with gunshot wounds. Uh, if, the, if, there shooters, if there was a shooter from the front, it was multiple shooters. I'd say that the CIA uh, was involved. And with the hearings and the material that's come out in the last 50 years, the research, the you know, the five million pages of documents now available in National Archives, many of which I've looked through myself, you know, there's ample evidence of CIA mob involvement in a conspiracy to kill Jack Kennedy and the framing of Lee Harvey Oswald and the commission, the Warren Commission, conducting really a cover-up and not a true investigation, making the facts fit a predetermined conclusion. All of these things uh, make it highly suspect that Lee Harvey Oswald was the single gun shooter. In fact, I think the evidence increasingly is that Lee Harvey Oswald was exactly what he said he was, a government agent who was a patsy, didn't shoot anyone, and was framed. Perhaps 50 years later, we finally have the truth, answering the question, who really killed Kennedy? Again, the new book available through WorldNet Daily, also through Dr. Corsi's website at JeromeCorsi.com. Who Really Killed Kennedy? Fifty Years Later, Stunning New Revelations About the JFK Assassination. Dr. Corsi, we appreciate so much the time, your hard effort, and all the research and the insights you've offered today. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We're going to spend some time in this portion of the program talking about power. Now, at least you think we're going to dive into a bit of a thesis on how to reduce your energy bills and (laughs) save money. Uh, No, not quite that kind of power, but power nevertheless. A topic that, while most of us don't spend a lot of time thinking about in a direct fashion, we nevertheless are engaged in it. Some of us exercise it. Others have a thirst or a yearning for it. It's something that we think about at certain levels, and yet we have this very odd relationship with power. We know certainly that the old adage, what is it, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But what of our relationship to this topic of power from a spiritual standpoint? My next guest tonight has taken some time to dive deeper into this very equation, and he details his findings 
and really kind of kind of pulling back, so to speak, the the layers of the onion to help us better understand our relationship to power inside the pages of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. It is written by author, executive editor of Christianity Today, Andy Crouch. And Andy, thanks so much for being on the program with us. Thank you, Craig. I'm delighted to be here. Fascinating topic. It's something that, as I say, well, we probably don't get up every day and think specifically about this topic. It's one that we're we're tied into on a day by day basis, and a lot of us find ourselves even in this in this struggle for or against power of one sort or another, uh, literally daily, don't we? It's part of being a human being, I think. It's actually part of being a living, any living creature uh, has some kind of power, because power, in the most basic sense, is just the ability to make a difference in the world, to make some kind of change in the world. And if you're alive, you're doing that one way or another. But as human beings, we have much more complex kinds of power than other creatures do, other parts of creation do. And that's ultimately because we're, we're made in the image of God in, in a way that other creatures aren't. And I think that's why every human being, uh, you know, you mentioned a yearning for power. Every human being kind of wants room to, to make something of value and worth. But then also this has become very distorted uh, by our own sin and the ways that we've uh, distanced ourselves from God. Indeed, we see uh, laid out literally from the Garden of Eden uh, the capacity of power to either do good or do evil. And then it seems as if it's been a, a history-long, lifelong struggle for mankind in trying to deal with well, what exactly is our relationship to power? What do we do with it? Why do we yearn for it? How do we corrupt it? How do we drive it in the right direction so that it can, in fact, do more good than it does evil? You know, when you, when you lay it out like that, you realize, in a way, the whole story of Scripture is a story about power. It's about the original power that human beings were meant to have. They're made in the image of God. They're the climax of creation in Genesis 1. And they're given dominion. You know, that's a power word over the whole creation. These very frail, vulnerable creatures, just like you and me, are, are told that they're to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and, you know, all this stuff that pre-technological humanity couldn't directly control and yet they're given this vision that they're there to represent the creator in the midst of creation but then something goes very wrong and i think you'd sum it up by saying they try to uh declare depend uh, declare independence from god they try to separate themselves from god and use their power for themselves and the power that we were meant to have which was meant to be the for the flourishing of the whole world ends up being kind of turned in on our own uh, benefit our own self-protection and then the question becomes, how is God going to intervene to set this story right? And that, in many ways, is, is the story of the rest of the Bible. And it really is amazing, as you point out. I mean, literally, in the opening chapter of Genesis, we see the first action of God, a display of his power, <laughs> as he engages in his creative power to bring about planet Earth. Then we see, later on, once mankind is about the scene, uh, first an account of the power struggle between Lucifer and God himself, and right. then later on, man's power struggle as we engage in this battle in the Garden of Eden. And it seems as if this, this issue of kind of a, a power struggle with God or against God has kind of been a component from day one, hasn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And this was actually true even in the world where the, where the book of Genesis was first written down, because the other creation stories that were told by the, the gods of Babylon or the, you know, the religion of Babylon all said that the world began with a conflict. Uh, they were all conflict stories. The amazing thing about Genesis 1 is it does not have, it doesn't begin with conflict. The conflict comes in later, and the 
the root conviction of Genesis 1 is that when God uses his creative power, it brings only abundance. It's not kind of a zero-sum game where if I win, you lose, or if you win, I lose. Instead, you get more and more flourishing. Uh, what happens, though, when the man and the woman are tempted, <laughs> and when they give into that, and when that sets in motion, really, history as we know it, is power becomes about conflict, and it becomes about competition. It's no longer about mutual flourishing, where we actually both could win. It's about one of us is going to, to dominate uh, the other, or one force is going to dominate the other. And we start to believe that that's the realist form of power, that the, the most real power is the power that can make you do something you don't want to do, rather than the power that can call into being a world or new kinds of creativity, new kinds of culture uh, that actually benefits everyone. So what's fascinating about this, then, is we really get pulled into this topic, Andy, of power in relationship to whether it's being used for uh, malevolent purposes or, on the other hand, malevolent purposes, Mm -hmm. that impacts every relationship that we have. I mean, certainly with God, I mean, sin is what better description of the power struggle uh, that exists between mankind and God uh, than to see sin and and how that power fight's going on. And not just, though, on the vertical plane, but even on the horizontal plane in our relationships. I mean, think of the young teenager who's rebelling against his parents, and all of a sudden there's this power struggle that we see that's being displayed there. Even the friction between husband and wife and relationships at that level oftentimes are are demonstrative of this fight over power. They really are about power, and, uh, and I think that's because in many ways it's the, most, it's the most fundamental thing we're given to work with as human beings, either for good or for bad. Um, and so you do find it in every relationship, actually, every workplace, every church, every family, and, and most of us, realistically, the place where most of us have the most power is in our family relationships, especially if we're parents. But even, even as, as those of us who are parents know, children have tremendous power in their relationship with their parents. Mm-hmm. And, and, of course, that's why so much of the Bible story is the story of families that either get it somewhat right, never entirely right, uh, and sometimes get it terribly wrong. Um, and, you know, again, we often think, you know, when we think of power, I think we often think of, you know, politics or perhaps military power, and those are very real But when I started to dive into this issue, I realized actually all of us confront these issues every single day. I confront it in my own home, not just when I'm out doing allegedly powerful things, but even in choosing how I relate to my wife and my children, my neighbors. It happens at every scale of human society. Well, even deeper than that, perhaps, Andy, is that the power struggle that goes on internally. I mean, look, for example, Paul talked about, you know, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I know to do good, and yet I do what not. Daily I have to die unto the flesh. Don't we see demonstrated there in that sense an internal power struggle going on do we yield to god do we yield to the devil who's going to kind of get control here i think that's an amazing observation and what it always i think uh, for many people the real question in life is not actually does god exist i think most people know god exists and paul says even those who don't believe that sort of suppress the truth they still know the truth but the real question is, is God good? <laughs> and, and especially, if I serve God, well, does that mean I have to give up things I want? Does that mean I have to give up what's good? And the, the root of, of every abuse of power is the idea that, that we can't both get something good. Either I and God, I can't, God can't get what's you know, good for God and good for me, or you and I, if we get locked in a power struggle, we start to believe either I win or you win. 
And when that enters into our relationship with God, we've basically believed the very thing the serpent says in Genesis uh, 3, which is God's actually jealous of his power, and he doesn't want you to have all of it, so you better eat that fruit so that you'll have what God doesn't want you to have. And that's the fundamental lie, that God wants you to have something that would actually be good for you, but that God doesn't want you to have. And that's just an amazing point that you make there, because there is an aspect of this power that we define in the flesh. And I mean, we just bring up the topic. We think of power. It's the energy to drive to do something, to accomplish something. And we often think that, well, the greatest display of power is when we're flexing our muscles to use power. Failing perhaps to recognize that it's somehow there's there's another aspect that can show how powerful we can be that in the flesh might seem to be weak, but in the spiritual realm is in fact very powerful. We'll talk a bit about that, too, as we continue our conversation today. Andy Crouch on the line with us today. He, executive editor of Christianity Today and the author of a new book called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues here on KFAX. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Dissecting today in this edition of Lifeline all of the power struggles that we see at so many levels within our relationships, within our history, uh, really going back to the beginning of time tonight with Andy Crouch. Um, he, of course, does not go quite back to the beginning of time, but he's been around for a while, enough to be able to be executive editor of Christianity Today, a prolific writer. One of his other best-selling books includes Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. We're talking today, though, about his latest book, newly published by InterVarsity Press, called Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Interesting, Andy, when we talk about the ways in which sometimes power gets distorted, we always have that sense that power is about getting my way. And if I just get my way, I'm somebody that's very powerful. And yet sometimes surrendering parts of ourselves, while perceived perhaps in the flesh to be weakness, actually can be quite powerful, can't it? Yes, and, uh, you know, it's amazing how often you, how much time you spend in the first chapter of Genesis when you start thinking about this, because, of course, the first chapter of Genesis begins with God, the Creator, who we know as Christians is three persons, three in one, and there's that interesting moment in Genesis 1 where God actually says, let us make humankind. And that uh, Creator is already complete. He has His way, if you want to put it that way, already, without making the world. And yet this God desires to bring into being a world that's going to have all of these other creatures, starting with very simple creatures uh, in the first days of creation, as, it's, as the story is told, but then culminating in these creatures who are made in his image. He actually wants partners. And so when we think about the highest form of power, I think we do often think, boy, if I really had power, I would just say, you know, do it, and people would do it. <laughs> they would basically be little... Uh, robots obeying my commands. Um, and this is what we think it would be like to be God, to be able to just move things around and move uh, persons around without regard to what they want. But it seems like the deeper form of power is actually to call into being other other persons who can actually collaborate with you, because that's what God essentially invites these creatures made in His image to do, to be His representatives in the midst of creation. So 
you know, we really have to get away from this idea that the, the realist form of power is control or command and realize that actually the realist form of power is creation and collaboration. That's when you have the most powers, when other people actually take up their own creative abilities. And, and that understanding, that perspective is, is critically important, isn't it? Because if we're going to redeem power then there has to be something worthy of being redemptive there. And so often, as I say, I think, Andy, a lot of us mistake power for meaning that means you get to do whatever you want to do in order to the other people around to do your bidding, which, as we're learning, is absolutely not the case at all. So then yeah. at the end of the day, it's understanding that perspective that allows us to see the good of power and how this can be then redeemed for God's purposes. That was one of the big breakthroughs for me, was when I realized we often talk about power as if it's the same thing as dominance or domination. And actually, that domination is a, is a very weak form of power. If all I have over you is the ability to make you do things that you don't want to do, I actually have very little real power. And it's interesting uh, you mentioned that. I remember thinking back to a lot of the media reports, for example, over Ariel Castro. This is that uh, guy there in Cleveland that kidnapped Amanda uh, Berry and, and wow. two other girls. Uh, and you would read the story on the surface and see the way in which he had held these girls in, in the basement of this house with uh, wire ties around their wrists and chains and everything else. And you think, well, there's demonstrative of this guy being so powerful, wielding all this power over these girls. And yet, the deeper you get into the psyche and the story, you begin to realize, no, this guy's not powerful at all. In fact, he's pretty powerless. Yes, and, the, and you know, Paul uh, will use the language of impri imprisoned or slave. You know, a slave, especially in the ancient world, was someone who had absolutely no power of their own, completely dependent on their master. And Paul says, if we really get, gave into that idea of domination, if we got what we think we want, which Ariel Castro did kind of get for a time, what he thought he wanted, the ability to dominate... We actually become slaves uh, of sin. We, we don't end up being masters. And that's why the serpent's promise in the garden is so um, appealing and so deceptive, because actually once the man and woman get what they want, what we want, to be like God without having to be in relationship with God, they actually find that they don't have what they wanted at all. Um, and that's what where domination leads. It, it actually, strangely enough, leads to the the one who would be master ends up being becoming completely so mastered by it. Re really, Satan is in the process of distorting power then uh, from the very beginning and all the time. Uh -huh. I mean, think for example about Jesus there during the forty days in the wilderness uh -huh. and the number of times that he was tempted. And and I always read those passages and thought to myself, Satan, you're an idiot. I mean, to begin with, you're going to say that you're going to offer very God Himself here. If you just bow down and worship me, I give you all of the kingdoms of the earth and so on and so forth. And I always thought to myself, how can you give God what he already has? <laughs> it's all his to begin with. He created it all. So how can you give him what he already has? Yes, but, you know, in a way, Jesus is the only human being who has heard those temptations and not at some level given in. Mm -hmm. Now, not all of us uh, have heard the promise of every single kingdom, but all of us have that kind of twinge of an idea that we're made for more than we have. And, and that's true. Uh, we, you know, we're made in the image of God. We're made for much more than we currently experience. But Satan insinuates this idea that there's a shortcut to it, that it involves domination, that it involves kind of cheating God of what God, only God can give. And Jesus is the only human being who's ever realized that's actually not, uh, that bargain will not actually work out. It's actually a lie. And if, if he went through with it, he would find that Satan had mastered him. And instead, he came out of that temptation able to, to say no. 
Bring us back to this full circle of the issue of um, bringing power back into the balance. First, to understand mm-hmm. that it, it, it needs to first and foremost be used for the capacity to do good. And we see, when we really mentioned this even from the very get-goes, we see this in Scripture. The very first acts of God are cre- is the demonstration of creative power. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think one question to ask is, you know, with whatever power I have today, you know, you mentioned I have a, I have a title, I'm executive editor of a magazine called Christianity Today. Well, that's a position of power. So the question is, I think there's a couple questions. One is, who am I using that power for? And if the answer is I'm using it mostly for my own benefit to, uh, you know, increase my own notoriety or fame or my own wealth or, you know, any number of things, then it's, I'm probably going to end up using other people for my ends. But it might be possible to use even, you know, positions like that actually for others flourishing. And I think in the case of people who say own a business, so that it could be a small business or have a position like I do where you are in charge of some people, you, you actually are given power not for your own flourishing, but for their flourishing. So one of the most important questions we can ask is, who is flourishing because I have power? (laughs) And if the answer is me and mine, that isn't very much like the true God. But if the answer is the people who actually are under my care are flourishing, they're becoming more of what they're meant to be, they're expressing their own power, they're getting to do things they, they wouldn't have gotten to do otherwise, then I think we're on the path to a much better use of power. If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Andy Crouch is with us. He's the author of Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Now, when we come back after a quick timeout, we're going to go deeper into this topic, uh, how we can go about utilizing the creative and malevolent power that God has given to all of us um, in order to use it for his glory, to go deeper in our relationships, not just with God on the, uh, uh, the vertical plane, but with others on the horizontal plane as well, as Andy just referred to. We'll take a brief time out, come back to more of our conversation right after this. Are you more than $10,000 in debt? Feel like you're on a never-ending treadmill, staying in one place and never getting ahead with those minimum payments? You feel like there's no way out? Don't let the credit card companies bully you anymore. There are programs in place to help you get free of your debt, and you don't have to pay the entire amount you owe. The program at Total Financial Freedom can help you get debt-free in months instead of decades. Get off the debt treadmill and stop the harassment. Get free of credit card debt, signature loans, department store cards, internet loans, and medical bills. Call now at 800-670-5450 for free information. For about 10 years, Total Financial Freedom has helped thousands. They're A-plus rated by the Better Business Bureau, too. Get off the endless cycle without having to declare bankruptcy. You'll have the right to settle your debt for a mere fraction of what you owe. Call Total Financial now at 800-670-5450. That's 800-670-5450. Thinking about life insurance? What if you could make one free phone call and learn your best price from nearly a dozen highly rated price competitive companies? Well, that's exactly what happens when you call SelectQuote Life. For example, George is 40. He was getting sky-high quotes from other companies because he takes meds to control his blood pressure. But when I shopped around, I found him a 10-year, $500,000 policy for under $25 a month. I'm SelectQuote agent Dan Savino. And believe me, if SelectQuote isn't shopping for your life insurance, you're probably paying too much. For a free quote, call 800-523-3771. That's 800-523-3771. 800-523-3771. Or go to selectquote.com. Since 1985, we shop 
you save. Get full details on the example policy at slugquote.com slash commercials. Your price could vary depending on your health issue and company and other factors. Not available in all states. Start your mornings with some truth for today. Pastor Phil Howard and Valley Bible Church of Hercules invite you to tune in weekdays at 530 to hear a challenging and life-changing message. Pastor Phil teaches the timeless truths of God's Word in a way that connects with your Christian journey today. Join Valley Bible for Sunday morning worship at 9 or 11. Find out about their other great ministries at valleybible.org and listen to Truth For Today, weekday mornings at 530, right here on AM 1100 KFAX. Well, they took Inventor Mike Lindell over two years to develop. They're designed to wear indoors and outdoors. They're made with quality leather. They're the My Pillow Slippers. You know, with so many people staying and working from home now, these slippers are the perfect footwear for every day, all day. The wonderful My Pillow Slippers have the My Pillow Foam and Impact Gel to help prevent fatigue. Boy, that's something we can all appreciate. Something else we can appreciate: a 50% discount. Yes, for a limited time, Mike Lindell is offering half off the normal price. Visit MyPillow.com, click the radio listener square, use the promo code KFAX, and while you're there, you'll see deep discounts on many MyPillow products. It's MyPillow.com, promo code KFAX, or call 800-479-1790. 800-479-1790. Use that promo code KFAX. If you're worried about your cholesterol, hear how others are taking charge with garlic. My doctor said my cholesterol was borderline, but I've been taking garlic and it works. I've been taking garlic for years. My pharmacist recommended garlic. He said there's an ingredient in garlic that helps maintain healthy cholesterol. I take garlic every day. No garlic breath. Lots of people like you are choosing garlic to help maintain healthy cholesterol. Garlic, it's cholesterol's natural enemy. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Use as directed. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Well, as we're discovering in our conversation tonight with Andy Crouch, and certainly displayed throughout so much of Scripture, uh, power can be used in very many good ways. We think of creative power. We think of the power that has been given to us unto salvation through Christ's substitutionary work on the cross. Uh, And yet, as we see the good side, the good aspects of power, we also recognize there's a power struggle. There's a balance between power being good, used for good, or power being good, uh, used for evil. How do we go about harnessing harnessing power for the use for good, for the glory of the kingdom, and learn how to become, I guess ultimately, Andy Crouch, trustees of power? We're, we're, we're kind of entrusted to this. It's just what we do with it, huh? <laughs> yes, that's right. And, you know, the title of my book is Playing God. And we usually say that like it's a bad thing. Uh, and it is a really bad thing if you're not playing the true God. But the Really, the question is not whether you're playing God or not, it's which God are you playing. You're going to play some image, you're going to bear some image with your life. Your life will either reflect the image of a false God, the God of domination, the God who has to get his own way, or it will reflect the the image of the true God, the God who, when things went so terribly wrong, was even willing to give up his own son uh, to bear pain rather than inflict pain. Um, so it really comes down to w- what you believe ultimate reality is about. And if you believe that, that the Christian gospel is true, it's going to change, I think, how you use the power you have and also who you use it for. You won't use it primarily for your own benefit. 
and you will use it, especially, it seems to me, for those who are the, the most vulnerable, the least and the last and, and the lost that Jesus talked about so many times. Jesus kind of reorients our use of our power towards people who can never pay us back necessarily, who can't benefit us, but who our exercise of power can actually help them flourish. This is kind of a delicate dance, isn't it? Because we see, for example, um, examples of uh, servant leaders. These are individuals who, who have power, maybe within an organization that they can hire and they can fire, things of this sort. Uh, and yet they wish to, instead of putting that power to use to demonstrate how much power they have, rather mm. sharing it with others to, to empower them. It's interesting how uh, perhaps the, the, there's a, a certain power of shared power, isn't there? Absolutely. And I think that's a, a wonderful model. And uh, in a way, you know, I think power really is, it's supposed to be used to serve. Um, that is to say, it's supposed to be used to help others flourish who would not have flourished if you didn't use your power. So if you have one of those positions, your responsibility is to make sure that other people flourish. And that's, in a way, the deepest, I think, sense of what's serving. Well, we, and we certainly see that, you know, throughout Scripture. I mean, for example, God is a righteous and holy God who created us, could have easily said, well, my creation has offended me and therefore I'm going to use my power to punish and abolish my creation. Instead, he used his power to bring about victory over death and sin through the work that his son did on the cross. It's amazing. And you know, as amazing as creation is, in some ways the new creation Paul talks about, which is the result of the, the giving of God and God's son on the cross, is even more amazing. The new creation is just extraordinary that God reaches into this broken world and doesn't act simply to wipe things out or to even to command and control everything, but starts recreating right in the midst of it and ultimately is going to make everything new, it says in Revelation. That's real power. <laughs> the ability to make all things new, to wipe tears from people's eyes, from everyone's eyes. Um, and we, of course, we only get a little taste of that uh, in our own lives. We're only given a tiny measure of that, and any more than we have would overwhelm us. But I do think we have access to that kind of recreating power, as well as the sort of original creativity that was human beings' birthright as image bearers. How do we start this process in terms of, I think, probably just evaluating where we're at in this power struggle uh, that we have yeah. with God? And, uh, the, of course, that, that then spills over into every other relationship. How do we go about ana analyzing, Andy, the way we're using our power, either to good or to uh, evil, and then learn how to rebalance it so that it becomes a, a redemption of power? I think that's a fantastic question. And, you know, I would start with our... Uh, with our neighbor who we have seen, as James says. James says, you know, how can you love God who you haven't seen when you can't love your neighbor who you have seen? And we can sometimes be very clever about rationalizing our relationship with God, but our neighbor sees how we treat them. And I'm thinking, maybe not so much our next-door neighbor, though it could be that, but the people who are closest to us, I think the place to start is to ask, very, to create an environment where you can honestly ask and honestly hear, how am I using whatever power I have? Um, and so husbands should ask this of their wives, uh, and wives should ask this of their husbands. It can start at home. It can happen in the workplace to say, you know, I have power in this position, perhaps, and asking the people who are affected by that, how am I doing? And making sure that they can a answer honestly. Now, that takes time. That takes building trust. But I think other people... Well, the other thing that happens, most of us don't think we have very much power. But when you ask other people, what are some of my gifts? What are areas where when I do this, it really creates things? 
they will they'll give you insight into the power you actually have, even if you don't have a title that seems like it has a lot of power or a position that seems like it has a lot of power. Now, let's talk then about relationship to bringing that power balance back in our in our relationship with God. Mm. So then, I so once we've started to uh, hear from our neighbors <laughs> how we're doing, I I think there's a huge place for you know what often the Christian tradition is called the spiritual disciplines, because the spiritual disciplines actually put us in a very powerless place. When I fast, or when I am silent, or when I pray alone, there's no one to impress. <laughs> it's not something I'm very good at. I think the interesting thing about the spiritual disciplines, like fasting, is any, any human being, uh, any healthy adult human being can do that. It's not hard to do, and yet it's impossible to do it well. Then when you seriously take up a discipline of fasting, you discover how how uh, sort of uh, accustomed you are to filling every little need with food. And you discover how much you need God. And so I think the spiritual disciplines are, are ways that sort of train us to realize how dependent we've become on our own sense of ourselves and our own sense of power. And they, they sort of lay us open before God, and it's amazing what you discover about yourself in prayer as you practice these disciplines. And at the end of the day, it's not that God wants to strip us of power. It's how we channel it, how we direct that, how we use that power. He wants us to have true power, and more, I think, than we ever really imagined. Uh, you know, Paul, when he's trying to deal with the church in Corinth, and they're you know, taking each other to court, <laughs> he says, look, don't you know we're going to judge angels? I mean, there's an immense amount of power that is waiting to be conferred on these redeemed image bearers that God wants to bring back into his creation, the way it was originally meant to be. So, God, you know, this is the, the, the great lie, is that God wants to take power away from us and keep us from having things we want, <laughs> when in fact God has more for us than we could ever imagine, but it's a matter of becoming the kind of uh, image bearers who can bear the weight of that and who can not be uh, kind of corrupted by it. To whom much is given, much is expected. Yeah, yeah. And that really kind of brings us full circle on this topic tonight. I sure appreciate you diving into this, Andy, because it's one that I think, you know, again, we, we look at all mankind and we see a power struggle going on. <clears throat> we look at history, we see a power struggle going on. We look at scripture, we see a power struggle going on. We look at sin in our lives with God and we see a power struggle going on. It's not that power is a bad thing. I mean, Thank goodness for power. We wouldn't be on the radio right now if it wasn't for power. And yet, if I walked up to one of the towers and decided to wrap my arms around it, I could also find out that the same power that's allowing our voices to get out all over the San Francisco Bay Area uh, could strike me dead in the wrong fashion in a quick second. So it really comes down to our relationship with power and what we do with it. Exactly. And the good news is God is at work in all this. And uh, that very thing that can electrocute, <laughs> and in a way did electrocute his son, right? His son suffered the worst that human power can do. That God can even overcome that and has something amazing on the other side of it that really brings uh, blessing to, to the world. And that's what I think the hope that we can have as we realize that power is everywhere, uh, but, but God's power to redeem and recreate and restore is everywhere as well. You, you might initially hear the topic and say, well, this is a good book. I'm going to get a copy from my boss. <laughs> um, or I have a husband or a wife or whomever that seems to be on a power trip. But really, all of us struggle at one level or another with power, trying to redefine what our relationship with power is, and then to learn that this is not something that um, should be shunned per se, that in fact it's a gift from God. How do we, though, redeem it for his purposes? You'll find some great insights. <coughs>
Pardon me, inside the pages of Andy Crouch's new book called Simply Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. The new book, again, published by InterVarsity Press. You'll find it at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as um, all the usual suspects, Amazon.com, etc. Andy Crouch, thanks so much for being with us. Great book, great conversation. There's Andy Crouch, executive editor of Christianity Today, author of the new book, Playing God, Redeeming the Gift of Power. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.